You're listening to JJ Live. This is Julian Magnard. Today's episode is with Professor Leo Hartley. Leo is an optometrist and a doctor, and along with his brother, founded H2 Vision Centers on the Sunshine Coast. Leo holds the position of Associate Professor at the Faculty of Medicine, University of Melbourne, where he teaches final year optometry students about how optometry and general medicine can work together to care for patients' eyes and general health. Leo puts emphasis on study and to never stop learning in your profession. His thoughts on AI will hopefully make you think about your future and what kind of effect technology might have on careers you may be interested in. In this episode, you hear him talk about the steps he took to being successful, his insights into the future of optometry. Leo was able to retire at 50, but his ever-growing desire to make a contribution led him to coming back into the industry. Leo is currently working with a team to establish a sustainable education program for local Vanuatu eye worker clinical associates in Vanuatu, which you'll hear more about in this interview. Without further preamble, Professor Leo Hartley. Leo, just for our listeners, when I was doing work experience with you a couple months back, um, you showed me a quote on Google and it said, create your future. You talked about how you really love this quote and um, I think that may have been because it's basically what you did. Is that correct? Yeah, I, the original quote was uh, the best way to predict your future is to create it. Right. And that's what I think it's true. It really is true. So if you're going to achieve something, then uh, what I do is I kind of take this three-step approach, which is a bit crazy, but I really believe in it because it's worked for me and I have been quite successful in my life. So the first thing is you've got to actually want what it is. So say, for example, uh, I wanted to be state windsurfing champion. So I then I thought about it every single day. I kept thinking about it, thinking about it all the time. And then the second thing is you've got to actually take reasonable steps to achieve it. So I used to go out and just about every day I'd go out and train, I'd practice windsurfing, I'd practice, practice my tax and jibes and all the rest of it. I'd get whatever expert, expert advice was around. I was really lucky to have a, uh, a friend who was an ex-Finn uh, champion in the Olympics and he taught me so much about sailing. Um, and then the third thing, which most people don't understand and don't believe when you tell them they think you're mad but it is actually i think the key to achieving anything in life and what i call it is detachment so in other words you actually say okay if i don't achieve this how am i going to feel what am i going to do it's not accepting that you're not going to achieve it it's just saying i accept that i may not achieve it Mm. and that way then you have strategies for failure in a way yep. and strategies for resilience yep. as well too. But what I found is the moment you actually get to that point where you actually give up and say, okay, I may not achieve it. I'm doing everything I can to achieve it. I'm, I've visualized it. I'm working on it daily. But at the end of the day, I accept I may not get it. All of a sudden it comes to you. So this has happened so many times in my life. I remember in, in when I was studying medicine fourth year, I got to a point where I had one of the worst years of my life. <clears throat> my father had passed away. I'd lost my marriage. I was uh, I was nearly killed in a bike accident, push bike accident. 
um, everything. I should have been dead and I was still alive and I was so depressed and I, I hadn't prepared at all for my exams and the exams were fast approaching and I thought, you know what, all I'd done every day was turn up. I just kept turning up for, for my lectures. I was depressed, but I just kept turning up. I thought, you know, Woody Allen's saying, 80% of life is just turning up, yeah. just turn up. Doesn't matter how ratchet you feel, how bad you feel, how depressed I was, I'd drag myself out of bed, I'd get on a push bike, I'd ride to uni, and I'd just turn up. And I used to think, well, at least that day, I'd got through it, and I understood everything that was said, and I, I didn't do any preparation or anything, but it was all there. And then at the end of the year, I was sitting down, trying to prepare for the exams and I thought I didn't even know where to start and I thought I'm going to fail and the thought of failure was so dreadful it sort of paralyzed me I couldn't study I just couldn't study and then I sat down and I said to myself look can you accept that you could fail and then I thought about okay if I fail then I've got it it's it's a really bad thing in medicine if you fail because everyone's so they're ultra high achievers right so but I sat down and I actually embraced it and I thought okay well I'll make friends with those the the guys underneath me coming into fourth year and I'll get through I'm you know it's this is the way this is what it could be I could fail and I accepted it and the moment I did that all of a sudden things got easier for me and I ended up sitting down and I was able to just read through past papers and stuff and I worked out pretty much what was going to be on the exam studied for it and absolutely blitzed the exam I couldn't believe it but I could not progress until I got to that point of detachment accepting that I may fail and that's what I think when I look back at the great the times when I really achieved in my life it's always when I've gone you know what I accept I might fail at this uh, but I'm still striving to do it but I accept it and it's funny um, a lot of young people say to me oh give me an example that I can associate with and I say to them well have you ever noticed that if you've got a partner or if you haven't got a partner you can't get a partner you can never get a partner you look around no one's interested in you but the moment you get a partner next thing you know you could have a hundred partners and it's because I think what happens in that point is that you actually get detachment on having a partner because you've got one already and then all of a sudden that makes you more attractive to other people mm. and I think that's what happens so Tell me a little bit about your journey through school and on to having your own practice. Okay, so um, I was uh, one of those kids. I was, I was a middle child of a family of eight, very, very close. Mum was a Catholic, Dad uh, was, I think, Anglican or something. But um, And back in those days, uh, you know, it was very, very important. Religion was a very, very big deal. And so I went to Catholic schools and, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I had lots of bad things happen with teachers, uh, Christian brothers and, and uh, sisters of mercy and the rest of it. Uh, they were very brutal and they were tough days. But then I ended up in a boarding school and, um, uh, again, it was quite brutal. But it, in some sort of funny way, it, it taught me to really appreciate uh, my parents I think sometimes you don't know how bad or how how good things are until you lose them or mm. not lose them I mean being a boarding school I hadn't lost my parents but 
I, it's sure when I saw my parents, I really appreciated them. Yeah. And then when I saw kids who didn't, who referred to their parents in a negative way, I always used to think, man, you know, wait, wait till you have yeah. to do without them, yeah. and then you really know how much you appreciate them. Um, I, that was a kind of a tough thing, and um, I suppose I learned about a lot about surviving bullying, but also. Uh, you know, I was always that kid who stood up for the underdog. I got copped a lot of hidings over it, but um, but it it in a way it it developed a sense of fairness in me, and um, and I've I've and sort of an integrity that that came into my life as a an optometrist. My father was an optometrist, and I I think to be a large extent I did optometry because. My dad was an optometrist and I wanted to be closer to him and I ended up practicing with him for many years. Um, uh, I don't think it brought us any closer. In fact, it kind of, it was a, it was quite stressful working with him because he had uh, a different view of life. And, but he was a man of enormous integrity and great. He really cared for his patients well and he was a, a good man, a very good man. But we didn't didn't draw us any closer until eventually he retired, and then we became quite close. I think I changed a bit too. I became less expect. I had less expectations of him as a father, and um, I think one of the things you have to learn as a child at any age is to forgive your parents for not being the way you want them to be. Yeah, it's a very hard thing to do because. You, as a baby and as a child, you come to expect them to be perfect, and then when they become imperfect, you're very angry with them. And um, it's interesting. Then, when I became older and had my own children, and then um, ended up becoming a single parent with my three children, um, you know, my kids even now we we sit around joking and we're very very close, but they'll say. Remember, recall conversations that we had where I might have said something to them um, that might have hurt them at the time, and I can't recall it in any way. You know, I'll say, "Listen, I'm really, really sorry I said that, but I don't even recall it." But yeah, yeah, I think it's important um, as a child to learn to forgive your parents, um, and uh, if you can't, then my advice is have some counselling because that helped me a lot to understand. For, I, I think. It, I really tried to understand my dad's life and the the life that he'd had, and then I it made me far more compassionate towards him. And then that way, I found forgiveness easily. Then came to me. Mm. I don't know. Leo, what is your fuel? What gets you up in the morning? I really don't know. I know that I am just so driven. I I honestly question this every day. I, um, at my age, I should be thinking about retirement. I I tried to retire once. Um, uh, well, I did. I retired, and and I was fifty years of age, and um, retired comfortably, living in in a beautiful home in Brighton, in Melbourne. And um, I was I, all I'd wanted to do was ride my push bike and run. And it was like the you know old. Forrest Gump, I was riding 600 k's a week and running 200 k's a week. No kidding. All I, That's all I'd do. I'd get up 4 o'clock in the morning and go for a ride. I'd get back about lunchtime, have a bit of lunch, 
have a, a shower, have a sleep, and then go for a 30k run in the afternoon. So it was just, um, but within six months, I was beside myself. I, I felt like I'd lost my way. I was so depressed and even though I was doing all that exercise I think that was the only thing stopping me from slitting my own wrist <laughs> not really but um yeah look I that's when I thought well what else can I do and and that's when I thought well for me it was good a good time because I really came to understand what makes me feel good about myself and that what I the big discovery for me was that I have to be feeling like I'm making a contribution that's a really really important thing yeah so um that's when i thought well i'd made all the contribution i wanted to in optometry at that stage so i thought well i'll go back and um study medicine so that's when i went and studied medicine and um and i thought back to the times to get to that i thought back to the times when i was the happiest professionally in my life and that had been when i'd been working in remote islands of Vanuatu mm. delivering eye care back then and um, and then I thought well okay I want to do that so I went and studied medicine at James Cook University where they've got a, a big emphasis on rural remote indigenous and tropical health and um, that's that sort of really drove me um, into that um, and then I've, I suppose the other thing is that I've always had this insane curiosity about life and about everything. So, um, and this drive that whatever I do, I have to do it to my best. Yeah. So if I pick a thing, then I just pursue it. I, I love this concept of, of tenacity. Uh, uh, everyone who knows me would say I'm a very tenacious person. Once I pick something and I just go and go and go and go. And that's got a good side and a bad side. So I often see in young children, like my three kids, the older three, were very, very tenacious. But the bad side of tenacity is stubbornness. <laughs> so I always used to think, well, a stubborn little so-and-so. But then I'd think, don't knock that out of him because, or her, that's, that's the thing that keeps them going. And it's that never giving up. You know that old saying, you only fail when you stop trying. Yeah. I really believe it. I really, really believe it. Um, so that's what I suppose it's a curiosity I keep and uh, like I, I had had this rule when I was an optometrist and I've sort of gone back to it now as a doctor and an optometrist so that I try to each conference I go to I try to deliver a paper on on an area that I've been researching so I find that really keeps me um, you know it's like keeps me active mentally and and I'm researching writing um, scientific papers all the time because I really and presenting them as well because I I I don't know I just have this crazy curiosity yeah it drives me I don't know maybe that's it we touched on a a few things there um I'd like to talk about your work in Vanuatu yeah um you're a, you're a part of a humanitarian medical eye and dental team. Yeah. Can you tell me about what you do over there? Okay, so what our group... Look, the whole emphasis uh, in the old days, uh, uh, I don't know, what, uh, 50 years ago, the whole concept was you just kind of, I'd call it cargo cult. Um, 
medicine where you just lob into a village and start curing people and you know doing whatever you had to do these days we've really moved thank goodness moved on from that um that's the old you know feed a man a fish type of thing feeding for a day um and what we're doing now is more aimed at um uh, developing sustainability in their healthcare system mm. so that involves a lot of education so what we've done is we've employed a lot of local people local they're called Nivanuatu people uh, and Nivans um, uh, so we've trained eye workers we've trained dental workers and then we work with the local nurses over there and now we've just started working with the local graduate doctors as well so the idea is that you, uh, we go to the really remote areas and we take our those workers there with us, and we're it's kind of on the job training. training yeah. um, I'm developing a website which is still uh, I'm still trying to get funding for, but uh, and it, each time I think about it, it, it becomes more and more expensive. But um, the idea being that um, we will actually have online. Um, as well as uh, uh, on-the-job training for our eye workers. So I'm going to focus on that area because we, the medical side is good, the dental side's good, um, uh, you know, so with their ongoing training. So we're kind of developing this sustainability. You know, I love it because one of the doctors that I work with, uh, we're all sitting around having a meeting about what we do, and he said, what do you guys think of the idea that we train out we train our Nivanuatu people to the point where we don't have a job and we're going yes that's really what the goal is you know so um but at this stage it's a long way off but you know uh if we ever get really great uh you know you know we're getting such massive advances in in medicine and optometry um that the whole approach, I think, will change as we get the internet to these different places. You know, I was very excited when I heard that Facebook was talking about, you know, covering the, giving the whole world internet access, but they've changed their plans on that. It's a shame because the ability to move those people forward uh, in knowledge-wise would have just been so dramatic. Mm. Um, and with telemedicine the way it is now, it's just very exciting mm. times. What kind of effect has working in Vanuatu and doing these kind of things on this whole project had on your life? Mm. And what kind of effect has it had on your practice at the moment? Yeah. Um, the effect on my life has been... Um, when we moved from many years ago, we used to just go over and do a whole bunch of surgery, you know, just... You know, it's kind of the locals would line them up, you know, like three, four hundred cataracts, and we'd just go and just mow them all down, you know. Um, and but you'd get on the plane at the end of the week or two weeks, and you just feel empty. And and that was always that used to always worry me. And I, I, I struggled a lot with that feeling of feeling that we're doing something altruistic, but it wasn't good. Now, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I know it sounds weird, but. And of course, that the thing that was missing was sustainability. Um, so when we went back eventually, and we just changed, that's what. Well, it wasn't just me that changed things; we all changed. 
and said we've got to develop sustainability with this with that's when we started employing local people and training them and all the rest of it so that was the that that was the driving force then to to really uh that that's changed me tremendously and made me far more satisfied with with the work we were doing um i come home feeling good and then also i've developed those relationships that are ongoing with the the Nivanuatu uh, people over there and providing more education the more we can provide the better it will be um has it had an effect over on my work over here um i don't know what i, I I suppose I just sleep a little better knowing that uh, we're not just ripping oh, you shouldn't say we're just ripping money out of the community by surviving but or providing a service but it is a good feeling to actually give back yeah. to make that contribution I suppose it gets back to that thing about what really makes me feel satisfied is making a contribution mm. and it's a very nice thing I'll tell you now it really is no one can nobody can tell you how good it feels is to make a contribution where you don't have to charge for it it feels very good it really does even though i think plenty of studies have shown that if you charge somebody just a little bit for it they appreciate it more but i think in the end of the day it's providing a service for somebody for nothing yeah makes you feel good mm. it's like giving somebody a gift yeah uh, it makes you feel good and whether they appreciate it or not, that's up to them. Yeah. <laughs> Before we started recording, Leo, um, you showed me a couple of things you're preparing for a conference. Mm -hmm. um, what are you talking about at that conference? Um, what is it about? And can you touch on what the message you're trying to get across is? Okay, so um, uh, it's a conference. It's a student conference, and they've invited me to speak uh, and it's a very big conference, but it, they've invited me to speak about the future of optometry. Um, and they have a very, I think everybody, really to be honest with you, everybody in the world's got their head in the sand about what future lies ahead. Um, I've really been reading a lot about the future and one of the books that really influenced me, or two, there's two main books, one's the future of, of the professions and the other one was Homo Deus. Um, both these books basically uh, show the rise of artificial intelligence and as, as it will take our jobs. And as I was saying to you before, having just recently, I just did a trip to Europe uh, as part of a, some training for a, an upcoming um, trial that we're about to start for its research, but it's got nothing to do with this AI. But I ended up uh, visiting um, Amsterdam, and I think the the Dutch have really they're right on the edge. Um, well, first thing that I noticed was that just travelling within Europe by plane, um, the lack of humans uh, that you deal with. So uh, you had your phone, it had your your scan on it, and there was no humans at the at the gate of the planes. You just scanned through. Mm. It was just like going onto a train. Yeah. You just scanned through and got on the plane, and that was that. Um, when we got to Amsterdam, I noticed straight away that um, we were booked into a beautiful hotel, and there was no one on the desk. So it was just as exactly the same as when you go to the the Jetstar. There's no Jetstar counter anymore. It's just those little things you just swipe on, and, and that was how we checked into the hotel. So no human interaction. Um, 
went to the Van Gogh Museum. Uh, they had they provided there was no humans there to interact with uh, to get in. They just had free Wi-Fi. Um, you had to buy a ticket online. You scanned your phone in, and then you got into the museum. There were humans in the museum, but mm. um, went to the supermarket. There was no humans there apart from one human uh, supervising the automatic checkouts. And how many jobs have I just talked about being yeah. lost there? I think AI is rising so fast and rapidly that we don't realise how quickly. So in optometry, most of the things that optometrists do, most of the testing is now automated. Um, and they've, I've just read an article where they've said that 53 uh, retinal conditions, that's the retinas at the back of the eye, 53 retinal conditions, they uh, had uh, AI, Google's AI, um, analyze them and it was more accurate diagnosis than top retinal specialists so we know that it's coming so pretty much i think the majority of optometrists the majority of of simple medical problems will be eliminated uh but uh, those jobs will be eliminated by ai those ai algorithms that just analyze data and they just use such a brute force approach to it they can absolutely eliminate so many jobs. So my take-home message for these young buddy optometrists is that their jobs may be eliminated if they don't um, continue to study. So if I if I have somebody comes in to see me and starts chatting with me, and I say to them, they say to me, I say, "Oh, what are you going to do?" And they go, "I don't know." I think, you know what? If, unless you choose to do something, you're going to get swept behind because there's not even going to be a job in a supermarket packing bags for you anymore. So you better get on the bat, on the wagon pretty quickly mm. and start learning. And then they say, I've heard this over and over. People go, oh, but find your passion and then do that. And I just think what a loser thing to say. If you're going to do something, if you just persist with something, just find anything, go to uni, Go to uni, do a degree, do a degree. Doesn't matter what it is, do a degree. Then at least you'll be, when there's jobs come up, at least employers will know, well, at least they can start and finish a degree. But usually if you're intelligent, by the time you finish your first degree, you're already enthusiastic about something. And once you're enthusiastic about something, go follow it and then persist it and pour huge amounts of energy into it. And the more you put into that, the greater the expert you become. The greater the expert you become, the less likely you are to lose a job to artificial intelligence. So for those young optometrists that are about to graduate, and I'm talking to them and say to them, look, um, whatever you do, when you complete your training, don't stop training. Train, train, train. The people who are going to survive are the ones who learn continuously deeper 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 more and more knowledge can't don't sit on your hands don't don't just say oh poor me i can't figure out what to do because the universe hasn't given it to me get off your backside and put some hard work into something anything but just become go and do it and go to university go to university go to university if you don't when it comes to there'll be thousands of people going for one job 
And if you don't have a university degree or two, then you're not even going to get a look in. And um, we're getting to a situation in Australia now and in the world where the world can't afford to carry people who can't do make some sort of contribution to society. So unfortunately, and I'm not trying to be hard-assed about it because yeah. I, I'm a very compassionate person, mm -hmm. but saying I don't know what I want to do and just accepting that as an answer for the, to themselves is not good enough anymore. You've got to decide on something, do something, and even if you start it and fail, at least you've started. And then yeah. it on that journey, you you should have learned something. And if you learned something, go okay. Well, at least I know I don't want to do that, but I want to do this now, and then keep going. But never ever admit to yourself you don't know what you're going to do next, because there's always something to do. Yeah, you just touched on um, when you become an expert at your profession. Yeah. I feel there is a, often a significant difference between um, the place where one studies. And where the one and where one learns their craft and um, becomes an expert. Yeah. Where and when did you grow the most, and what transformed you into a uni student into an experienced optometrist? Okay, so uh, I think the biggest thing is once you become, uh, once you get that degree, even in medicine, I I still remember uh, after I graduated as a doctor and. The first time I was on call in my first week of being a doctor, I was on call and they called me to this uh, very large patient lying in a bed who was decompensating and dying in front of me. And I could still remember my first thought was, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and then I thought, now get a hold of yourself because you're here and you're carrying the can. You've got to save yeah. this person. So then I just went back to my ABC, you know, sort of start at the beginning, work your way through, you know, and then that's One exactly time. save the yeah. patient. Yeah. Um, so once you've been through something tough like that, then the next time it's easier, easier, easier. But each time you go through a situation, then the most powerful thing to do is to reflect on it, is to think, what should I have done better? How could I have handled that better? Um, and it's really powerful. I don't write it down. Uh, a lot of people write their reflections down, and these days we're very we're encouraged to write everything down. But I don't. Um, my way of reflecting is to do some exercise and reflect while I'm exercising. Mm -hmm. Other people like to paint. Other people like to play music, and you know, even if it's listening to music or playing a musical instrument, and it allows their brain to process that stuff and and uh, settle it and reorganize it so that it's a useful experience. Mm. That's how I think how, um, and then the other thing about becoming better is continually learning, 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 never stop learning, like, and use questions. We're in a, a fantastic point of life now where I think of a question, and years ago before we had the internet, I'd write that question on a piece of paper and I always had about a hundred pieces of paper in my top drawer of my desk of questions that I'd write and then I'd be going through them all the time prioritizing those questions and then writing away for textbooks and and journal papers and stuff because I didn't have those we, it was quite laborious but these days you can think of a question answer it, it. Yeah, yeah. and answer it immediately with high quality literature 
so it's really really improved um, thing I, I, for me I got rid of social media in my life uh, I know it's probably a mistake but about 15 years ago because I found that what it was doing was wasting a lot of my time a lot of time when I actually sit now and research and think about things um, you can't underestimate the value of just sitting and thinking and pondering you know I spent a lot of time just standing in the shower thinking 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 and same with when I'm riding my push bike or on my motorbike I'm thinking about those things that those questions and then I'll sit down at the computer and go through and find evidence to support what I'm thinking or or refute what I'm thinking so mm. um, does that answer your yeah, question? It does. Yeah, does yeah. definitely um, Leo do you have a bucket list? Um, oh, I've got yeah I've got a few things I I, um, I hate to say it out loud um, because I've done so much study all my life but I, I really want to before I die get a PhD um, <laughs> I've done so much study, yeah. but I yeah. really do want to get a PhD. Um, and uh, it's more just a bucket list thing, to be honest with you, because I think I have the research skills um, and the ability to write good research um, without it. But I will, I will, that's one of the things. So from a professional point of view, um, I would like to change the future of optometry. I think optometry for those people that that are not in that middle group where supplying the uh, that will be replaced by machines uh, I want to lead the profession to a more advanced form of optometry as I, I actually uh, do which sort of um, it is it just shows a far more advanced clinical op optometry um, and uh, I would like to uh, walk the 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 Camino Trail, the Camino Trail, um, and uh, um, oh yes, and I want to learn. I've, I'm learning kite surfing, but I really want to learn kite foiling. So. Yeah, it's cool, eh? <laughs> hey? Or it any foiling, so cool. any foiling yeah, will foiling make me happy. It's crazy. Foiling is the future. It it's is, just, hey? Yeah, it really is. Uh, so I've just bought myself a new toy, which is one of those things. It's out the back uh, with a board on it. You know, the one wheel or the the balance board. It's like a balance board, but you. Uh, yeah, 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 I know you're yeah, yeah. I've just got one out the back, just arrived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that um, having a bucket list is important for um, anyone, young people, whoever? Yeah. Look, uh, honestly, uh, to be honest with you, I really, really think that the first thing you should do after you get your degree for god's sake don't have a gap year because gap years i've seen so many people have a gap year and never go back to uni and what a waste what a waste of a brain you know i get all carried off in some crazy direction mm. but have a year after you finished your degree or a couple of years later when you've got some coin together god's sake go overseas you've got to go to europe yeah you've got to see where or, and Asia, but Asia's easier to go to for a cheap holiday yeah. while you're studying. But really, go to Europe and see the foundations of of uh, culture. culture. It really is. And um, even go and live and work in in London and 
do your little forays out into Europe. It's fantastic. Um, it's one of the best educations. Travel is such a great education. Mm. Yep. And don't just go and go, okay, I'll take my tins of baked beans and eat those. Go and eat the food. Eat, you know, do all the things. Do get well. the belly. Yeah. Get sick. Do everything. You know, just immerse yourself in these cultures. Yeah. And that's how you really, really grow. Uh, it's such a great education. It's, uh, you know, any amount of... I've ridden my push bike through Europe a couple of times and... Um, ridden around New Zealand, uh, uh, you know these uh, paddled my sea kayak uh, around New Zealand and yeah, um, wow. yeah uh, North Queensland. Oh, you just got to try to get as many different experiences as yeah. you can. It, it really I makes agree, a difference, yeah, yeah uh, to you as a person. You know, so yeah, and uh, try to put yourself in positions of where you're struggling and you're hurting a bit. You know, um, because like one of my favourite things to do is I often take my family uh, and friends and we go, let's go sea kayaking. We go to the Sundays, and we might have five or six days of camping on beaches wow, and, yeah. um, you know, paddling from spot to spot and they're all whinging because they're this and that and they're sick of sleeping on a, on a foam mattress or whatever. But then we always finish at a five-star resort for one night. And so you go from this craziness of dirt and, and salt caked on you and... <laughs> feeling a bit rough <laughs> yeah, and you yeah. know haven't slept to luxury you yeah. know where you're drinking champagne yeah. and, and it the it makes that last night a completely different experience you know all of a sudden you totally appreciate every single bite of food you're eating every it is just fantastic yeah. but it doesn't mean you haven't had a great time oh, yeah. sea kayaking yeah. but it's just that trying to put the extremes together really heightens the good you mm. know so uh i think that's important to yeah. always have some bad with the good well there any like man i wish they taught me that in school moments mm. for you um yeah. and what are some of the things you'd wish you had known going into the medical profession i always knew bullying was a huge problem in medicine and i'm here to say it still is and despite I've, I've thought a lot about that. I, I suppose it's it was the hardest thing for me to take um, because I'd ridden to, risen to the top of one profession um, and I was starting at the bottom of another. But I think as an older person, I found being bullied um, very, very difficult to take um, it by people who was, you know, they were suffering themselves and had been bullied from above them. So it's a, it's a very hierarchical field medicine. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it just lends, that hierarchy lends itself to bullying. I don't know, I suppose that's about the only thing I wish I'd known. Well, I did know it because my, uh, you know, my partner at the time was a doctor and she ex- had uh, experienced it quite as well. But... Um, yeah, it was came as a bit of a shock when I was on the wrong end of it, and there's nothing you're quite powerless to do anything because of the hierarchical nature of it. Mm. Um, it it's a shock too that when you realise that the buck stops with you and someone in your care can seriously slip through your fingers, um, that's a shock. Um, uh, when you have to turn up and see a patient 
who's dead and been dead for a few hours and mm. you have to pronounce them dead um, uh, because you've been too busy to get there. You know, and the nurses have phoned you and you're trying to get there, you know, to the middle of the night and you finally make it there after all the emergencies and everything and patients, you know, sitting there dead. It's kind of always shocks you a little bit. Um, yeah, the things like that, I suppose, are just, mm. yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, I think the other thing that shocked me was I really didn't think I'd believe in euthanasia um, because I truly believed in the sanctity of life and all the rest of it. But I really believe in euthanasia, uh, voluntary euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia for people with cancer and stuff. I suffer so much. Yeah. Mm. Earlier we, um, we mentioned what is your fuel. I'm wondering what is your handbrake? What do you trip over? What's your obstacle that... That may slow you down. Um, Self-doubt. Yeah, I, I do. Sometimes um, I expect something to go a certain way and it doesn't. And I have self-doubts, you know. I go, all of a sudden, gee, I didn't do, you know, I didn't do as well as I thought I would at that. I, I thought I was going to do great at it, you know. And I hadn't thought it right through and thought... No, maybe this won't go so well. Can you accept it? You know, okay. and that tends to slow me down. It tends to put me into a very reflective phase, and I'll sit there and work out. Okay, then it might be three, or four days of really thinking about how can I do that next time a lot better. You know, whatever it may have been, um, and trying so that I can avoid that. But you know, we're all just human, and uh, I have to accept that as well. Mm, so. Yeah, um, I've got. One more question for you. Okay. Hastu Vision Centres is a successful yeah. business. Um, yeah. Do you have any advice for people setting up a practice of services? Yes. The first thing is uh, treat every patient like your life depends on it because it does. So every person that you come in contact with. And if you, if you truly believe that in your heart, you will find that your staff will come on board with it as well. And each patient becomes, or each client or customer you really care about them if you genuinely care about them they feel it straight away Mm. Um, and the other thing is if somebody comes in and says how much is this they don't mean how much is this what they mean is tell me something about what I want to know so so the best thing for you to do is to ask them questions so someone comes in and says how much is this say oh what brings you in what do you think what were you looking for ask them and the more that they tell you, the more they, they tell you, the more they're investing in your business. So they're going to the trouble of telling you more and more and more and more. And the more they tell you, the more you know about what they want and the more you can supply what they want. So it all comes down to that. Never let somebody just walk out, walk in and go, how much is that? And you tell them and then they walk out. You say, oh, what were you looking for? Because they might be looking for a present for somebody or it might be this or that. And if you find out and you take interest in them because you care about them, you genuinely care, then what you find is that they want to come back to you. They want to spend money with you. They'll, and you can satisfy their needs better. Mm. Well, Leo, before we sign out, I'd like to thank you so much for offering me work experience here and um, for allowing me to interview you and also for inspiring me to to start up this podcast. Um, I just thank you so much. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mark.
And that's the cut. If you enjoyed this episode, you can rate it on iTunes or let me know what you think of the podcast wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to find out more about what we talked about, you can see the show notes of this episode on my blog at julianmunyard.com. To contact me or find out more about what I do, search for Julian Munyard on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, or SoundCloud. The best way to predict your future is to create it. Thank you for listening to JJ Live.